Well, a long time ago, uh, the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to his protege, who he was mentoring, named Timothy. And in the second, uh, or third chapter of his second letter to Timothy, he writes, All Scripture is inspired by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the person of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. He, he goes on a little bit further and, and he encourages and challenges young Timothy to preach, to proclaim this scripture, the word of God. He, Paul believes that the scripture has the power to change not only a life, but the course of the world. And I'm referencing Paul's high view of Scripture because once in a while, even in the middle of a series like this one in Matthew that we've been in since January, every once in a while it's good just to pull back for a minute and and, and ask why it is that we are about Scripture. Why is it that we are living and striving to live within the stream of Scripture? As I mentioned just a minute ago, we've been in Matthew's Gospel since January. What are we doing that for? Let me suggest some of these reasons. We're getting to know Jesus better. We're really getting to know who He is. We're getting to know His character, not just in a theology book, but we get to see His character as He interacts with real people. We're getting to know how Jesus thinks, how it is that He loves, and what He calls His followers to be. We're getting to know what Jesus has done, and we get to know what He is calling us to do. And maybe most of all, as we, as we go through Scripture, we're getting a picture of God's story and an invitation to our place in that story. Each book of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, gives us a little snippet, a little aspect of the larger story of God. Each gospel writer, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, gives us the story of Jesus in their own way, from their own perspective, with their own kind of style and flair. And in Matthew, what we've seen is is he's first and foremost a teacher. Like Matthew is literally, he's probably like a high school teacher on his side. No, I know he's a tax collector, but seriously, he could be a teacher. He's organized. He's repetitive. He wants to make sure you get the same point. So he'll bring it up every few chapters. And, And he's thorough. And he's thematic. Matthew has organized his gospel into sections of, of Jesus' teaching and sections of Jesus' doing, uh, of Jesus' calling and Jesus' sending out. So in Matthew 5 through 7, for example, that's what we have, have learned to call the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Jesus is giving us a teaching, a vision of what life following him can look like. And when he got done with that teaching, the crowds were amazed. Because Jesus was different than any other teacher. He taught as one as having authority. Then, in Matthew 8 through 9, we see Jesus living out what he talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. So you've got his words, you've got his deeds. In Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus taught with authority. In Matthew 8 through 9, Jesus lived with authority. In 5 through 7, he talked about the kingdom of God. In 8 and 9, he displayed the, the authority as the king of the kingdom of God. Now last week, we started a new section, a teaching section, in Matthew chapter 10. Jesus, the one who taught with authority and lived with authority, now sends his disciples out with his authority. 
They're to go on a special mission, not in their own strength, not because they're particularly qualified or because they have all this experience. The only reason they go is because He sent them. And the only reason they are successful is because He gave them His authority. You see how this is working? Jesus has been training His disciples. He starts off by teaching them with words. Then He takes them on a field trip in Matthew 8 and 9. He says, watch me. And then He sends them out to practice, to apply all the things they've observed. Last week we saw how Jesus gave His 12 disciples authority to cast out demons and to raise the dead and to heal the leper and to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. So last week we looked at what the mission was. And today, we're going to look at the, how Jesus wants them to uh, fulfill this mission. So I want to invite you to stand with me as we read the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10, verses 16 through 23. So Jesus has just told them, I'm sending you out to do all these things. I'm giving you authority. And now he says, wake up. Behold, I send you out as sheep among wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But beware of people, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues, and you'll even be brought before governors and kings for my sake, as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given to you in that hour what you are to say. For it's not you who speak, but it's the Spirit of the Father who speaks in you. A brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. You will be hated because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. But wherever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going throughout all the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Lord, I confess as we read this scripture, um, it doesn't sound like very much fun. It sounds incredibly challenging. It sounds a bit like a suicide mission. And yet it is in Matthew's book called A Gospel. And so, Lord, we know that we ought to be looking for good news in these words. And I pray that you would reveal it to us, Lord. And as always, that we would hear and take in what it is that you have for us. Uh, Lord, that you would challenge where challenge is needed, and that you would comfort where comfort is needed. And in all ways, that you would be glorified. Amen. Please be seated. Weird passage, a little bit strange. Uh, and as we enter into it, I want to point out, I think we need to read it on at least two levels. I only have time for two today, sorry. Uh, two levels. Because this particular passage is really interesting. It's, it's, it deals with a particular group of people, the twelve disciples. Jesus is talking to the twelve, for the twelve, and he's sending them out to a particular group of people. He says, I want you to go just to the people of Israel. Okay, so it's a very specific kind of time-locked thing that we're talking about. The twelve going to the people of Israel. Now, later on in Matthew, in the Great Commission in particular, Jesus will charge his disciples with bringing the good news of the kingdom to all 
people around the world. He's going to tell them, wait for the Holy Spirit. But before we can make that jump theologically, we have to take this passage at face value and try and understand what it meant. Then we'll get to a second level. Matthew puts this story in his gospel for a reason. He's an evangelist. He's a teacher. So after we work through the passage once, we're going to go back and look at it again. And I'm going to ask us a few questions. One, what does this teach us about Jesus? Okay. By the way, that should be a guiding principle that whenever we read the Bible, what does this teach me about God? What does it have to say to us on this side of the cross and resurrection? I mean... Jesus is giving a teaching to his 12 disciples before he was crucified, before he rose. Now, what does it have to say to us who live on the other side of that? And the third thing is, what is the good news in this passage? All right. So, we begin with Jesus' sobering words. Behold, or look. I'm going to say something really serious. Whenever you see Jesus uh, starting a sentence with that word, behold, or maybe in your translation it says, look, it's a way of him like getting your attention, getting whoever he's talking to, getting their attention. Look. Pay attention. Now, I can see the disciples getting excited. They have just been told. Even though we looked at this, the, the first part of this scripture last week, It's all one teaching. So imagine Jesus has just told the disciples, you've seen me do some cool stuff. I'm going to give you my authority to go out and raise the dead and cast out demons and heal the sick and proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. And I'm only sending you to your own people, a culture you understand, people with a common history, a common story. It's not like you have to go to Congo. You don't have to go anywhere else. I'm going to send you guys out with my authority to your own brothers and sisters. And at this point, if you're a teacher, you've probably lost your classroom. Because if you're going to say anything else, you know that the kids or the students are like, this is so cool. Peter, where are you going? Oh, I want to go to the lake. I'm going to go up to, uh, you know, Capernaum or... I'm going to go to my family first. And I bet you they're chattering and blah, 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 blah. This is so cool. Jesus says, listen up. I send you out as sheep among wolves. Gulp. Maybe this isn't going to be as cool as we thought. Now, the image of sheep among wolves might be lost on us. Most of us have never raised sheep. Maybe you have in a small yard or something like that. But most of us probably haven't been herders of sheep. And if you, if you were, you would know that predators like wolves make easy work of sheep. Sheep have like no defenses. They're so stupid and, uh, and, and so defenseless, really, from wolves. And so if you're a shepherd of sheep, you would normally do anything in your power to protect them and to keep them away from wolves. But here, Jesus, who, remember, he's known as the good shepherd, oddly sends his 12 closest disciples into the, the, the place where wolves are. He says, you are like sheep, and I'm sending you to the wolves. Okay? Suicide mission? Well, as you probably guessed, there's more to it than, than that. Uh, there's more going on than meets the eye. First of all, there's just a metaphorical image of sheep and wolves and serpents and doves. Jesus has told his disciples... He's sending them out with his authority, which they're thinking, yay, I've got his power, but also with his method. And if you watch Jesus' method, he never overpowers people. 
He never takes advantage of people. He never fights violence with violence. Jesus does his ministry with vulnerability. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches us that it is the poor in spirit who receive the kingdom of heaven. It, it is not, it's not the self-righteous and the arrogant. It's the humble meek who inherit the earth, not the aggressive and the ambitious. It is the merciful who receive mercy, not the merciless. It is those who seek reconciliation that are the people of God rather than those who hold grudges and are angry with people. And we are to love our enemies. So Jesus sends his disciples out with the gentleness of sheep in a land where the way of the wolf is rampant. Does anyone know a land like that? Look out for number one. They're to be gentle, even to absorb attacks rather than retaliate in violence. But they are not to be stupid. They're to be crafty or wise as serpents. Now, some people have taken that metaphor, be wise or crafty as serpents, down a road it was never meant to, to be taken. I've heard some crazy things like, well, Jesus says we're supposed to be like snakes, so that means be cold-blooded and ruthless. Or, wait and strike when the striking's good. Or, if you have to fight, you know, you have poison fangs or some crazy stuff like that. Let me just clear this up now, that the serpent was an image, a proverbial image that just meant wise Wise. Be wise. Be wise as the serpent. The disciples were to be gentle and humble as sheep among wolves, yet not naive. They're to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. The word for innocent here literally means unmixed in loyalties. Unmixed in loyalties. Maybe the easiest way to think about the innocence of dove thing is um, simply focused attention or childlike faith. You're to go out. Basically, Jesus is saying, I'm sending you on a mission where you are going to be completely vulnerable. Be single-minded in your focus and be wise. Like the serpent, I'm just telling you, I wouldn't trust a bunch of people. That's what Jesus is saying. Like the serpent, be wise. Don't trust a bunch of people. They will hand you over to be scourged in the synagogues. And in fact, we see this play out in the life of Paul, for example. It, we have at least five different records, records of him being scourged in the synagogue at least five different times. I don't really know what that's like, but this is what I do know. It's a leather whip with a frayed ends, sometimes with bone in it, usually not for the synagogue beating. But this I do know if you're like, oh, that's not bad. No, no bones at the end. How about 23 lashes on the back and 13 on the front or the shoulder? 39 in all. Yeah, I can do math. That's a lot of lashes. Five different times that Paul received this type of treatment. What Jesus is saying is the mission that these guys are sent upon will lead to persecution. But in that midst of that persecution, Jesus promises that the Holy Spirit will give them words to say. That they will be allowed to bear witness to Jesus and His kingdom. Now again, that verse <laughs> has been abused by some. You know, like, don't worry about what you're going to say. The, the Spirit will give you words. 
And it's usually abused by preachers who don't want to prepare and they wing it. And yes, they are given lots of words to say, but if you've ever heard one of those, it's usually not words that are coherent. <laughs> um, it, this, this isn't a promise to just be able to wing it every week, whether you're teaching a Bible study class or, 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 or teaching a sermon. First of all, I don't think that many of us in our churches have a hostile environment. Like, you're not trying to scourge me right now. If you were, maybe the Spirit will give me words to say. The other thing is that this, this promise here doesn't negate the fact that maybe the Spirit speaks to us when we study and prepare as well. It might even give us more time to process uh, and, and give us some things to say, but I digress. The Spirit, the promise of the Spirit's speech is particularly significant in the first century Roman world. And here's why. Um, Trying to think of who would be really popular in our day. Like cultural icons would be maybe sports stars or rock stars or something like that. Or yeah, or that Korean guy. He just came out with a new video. Yeah, sorry, yeah. Um, I don't get that by the way. But anyway, uh, but in 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 first century Roman kind of world, you know who was the rock stars? Speakers, public speakers. Rhetoric was the thing. And if you ever went to had to go to court. You would hire one of these well-known public speakers. And uh, it's kind of like defense attorneys today, except that even worse than today, you don't really have to have any solid evidence. You just had to have the speaker that would woo the crowd. In fact, sometimes it was more about the form of the speech than the substance of the speech. And what, what Jesus is telling his disciples is don't worry about how you're going to come off. The Spirit is going to give you the words to say. And it may not be this flowery uh, rhetoric, but it is going, the, when the Spirit gives you words to say, it pierces the heart and will proclaim the message it's intended to proclaim. Again, I, I, I turn to Paul, who is under trial at one point. Again, in 2 Timothy, uh, in the fourth chapter now, he writes, He's in trouble. At my first defense, no one supported me. They all deserted me, but I don't count it against them. Paul's such a gracious guy. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished, and that the Gentiles might hear, and I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So here's Paul, he's been in trouble, no one came to speak on his behalf, none of these famous uh, speakers, but the, the, the Spirit gave him words and strengthened him. Jesus sends his sheep out among wolves, vulnerable. He predicts their troubles. He says, you're going to have trouble. And then he promises the Holy Spirit. Next, Jesus predicts that they will be betrayed by family. And don't, don't lose this in that sentence. All will hate you because of my name. But then he makes another promise. He says, if you endure, you'll be saved. Not if you're amazing, you'll be saved. Not if you bring tons of people to Christ you'll be saved. Not if you have the biggest ministry or the best comb-over hairdo will you be saved. Not if you have the best blog about Christian living or write the most Christian songs will you be saved. It is if you endure, you will be saved. If you uh, live, go out humbly like a sheep, make yourself vulnerable, and are wise... 
and are single-minded in devotion and loyalty to this cause. I'm not asking for you to be spectacular. I'm asking you to be faithful. I think that's the, what Jesus is communicating. If you endure, and think of that, that parable of mustard seed and leaven. It's the, the small things that God will then take. It's the small efforts that you make. I'm not saying don't do anything great. If God opens doors for you to do something great, amazing. That is good news. I'm just saying you don't have to be great in the world's eyes to endure to the end. And that is really good news for most of us who are, well, at least I'll speak for myself, quite ordinary people. Jesus finishes this part of the, the, the passage we're looking at tonight with one of the notoriously most difficult passages to interpret in the Bible. Yay me, I get to preach on it. Uh, he says, Truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. What does that mean? Certainly, the disciples could have gone through all the cities of Israel in one generation. Heck, they could have done it in a couple years. Was Jesus wrong then? Did the Son of God come or not? There are at least six main interpretations of this passage that literal books have been written about by different scholars on these different views. I would say at least three of those interpretations are well within the realm of orthodoxy. I could see how any of those three would be good. And so first of all, I, I always, always, always want to encourage you as the church to think, to read it, to study it, to, to, to meditate on it. But I'm in a conundrum because I'm a preacher. And so I'm going to give you what is my best take on this, and you can take it or leave it. But this is where, uh, how, how I see it play out. Jesus refers to himself several times as the Son of Man. Uh, even that statement is quite uh, debatable where it all comes from, what he's referring to. But it, the prophet Daniel speaks of one uh, as the Son of Man. In fact, Daniel is one of the main sources we have for that kind of title in the Bible. In Daniel, there's a prophecy of one like a son of man who would be sent by God to his people, right? So in Daniel the prophet, this, this, God is going to send this one like a son of man. And he's going to be rejected by the people he goes to, to save. And then Daniel says that this son of man, after being rejected, is going to be vindicated he, he basically, he's going to receive a kingdom. He's going to receive honor and glory from the Father. And then all those people who rejected him will be judged. Okay? Now, here's the thing about the Son of Man passage in Daniel. It's written from the perspective of a heavenly court. So Daniel the prophet receives this vision from God. And in the vision, Daniel is in heaven, in the heavenly court. Okay, so when it says that the Son of Man will come before the throne of the Ancient of Days, that's the Father, when the Son of Man will come, He's not coming from heaven to earth, He's coming from earth to heaven. So if Daniel's writing from that heavenly perspective, then when the Son of Man comes, it doesn't mean, like it's not referring to the second coming when Jesus returns to earth, it's talking about when Jesus, the Son of Man, will come to heaven to receive the kingdom from the throne of God, the Father. So when Jesus says, you will not finish going throughout the cities of Israel on your mission before the Son of Man comes, 
I think he's alluding to this passage in Daniel. The Son of Man then that he's referring to is not coming, he's not talking about the second coming in this passage. He's talking about when he dies and when he raises uh, from the dead, he will, go, he will come before the throne of the Father and receive his kingdom. And the nation will be judged. Okay. We looked at the whole sheep among wolves thing metaphorically. Meaning gentle and nonviolent. But there is another meaning I think would have been even more obvious to a first century Jewish person. In the Old Testament prophets... And in some of the teachings of the rabbis, we know that Israel thought of herself as, of course, God's chosen people among a hostile world. They thought of themselves, the language that they used was, we are sheep and the Gentiles are wolves. You catch that imagery? Israel seeing herself as sheep among a world of wolves. They thought of themselves, right, as righteous in a world of oppressors. And oftentimes in their history, that was true. So think how powerful an image this is, that Jesus is now saying to 12 men, you are the sheep. And I'm sending you out to Israel. And they are the wolves. Did you hear that? Israel, made up of 12 tribes... Right? were always thought of themselves as the sheep among a world of wolves. And Jesus now just happens to pick 12 as if reconstituting a new people of God. It says, you 12 are the sheep. I'm sending you out among your own people and they are the wolves. No longer is it blood that marks you out as the family of God. It's your allegiance to Jesus. No longer is it the temple where you meet the presence of God. It is in Jesus. Uh, last week we read how for the Jewish cities who rejected the message of the kingdom, who, re- who rejected the message of Jesus, what did he say? It would be more bearable on the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than for those cities. Sodom and Gomorrah are bywords for like the most evil cities you can think of. What an offensive and powerful message. If you were one of those 12 disciples or a, or a Jewish person reading this later on, it would, do, it would at least wake you the heck up. This is truly offensive. But can you see now why Matthew included this little bit? into his gospel. Matthew the evangelist is writing, we believe, primarily to a Jewish uh, Jewish audience. He's trying to help his brothers and sisters see that Jesus is the Son of Man. Jesus is the Son of God. He's the fulfillment of the promises of God. He is the one you've been waiting for. Matthew is saying to his brothers and sisters that he grew up with, uh, his brothers and sisters in the, in the Jewish faith, he's saying, don't miss this. because Don't assume that because you're born in a certain family or a certain faith or in a certain land that God is just on your side anymore. Because anyone who rejects the, the message that Jesus is who he says he is, rejects God. 
He's not pulling any punches at this point. He, that is just flat out. When Jesus rose from the dead, he was vindicated over Satan and his power of death. He sent his Holy Spirit on the disciples who carried out his mission among the people of Israel, telling them about the risen Lord, telling them about uh, who Jesus is, about Jesus being the fulfillment of the Son of Man, passages of Jesus being the Messiah, of Jesus being the one they've been waiting for. And for doing that, many people did come to faith, but in doing that, the disciples were beaten. They were brought before rulers. And before those rulers, they spoke powerfully of Jesus. But eventually, in 70 AD, the Son of Man was vindicated over and above the people who rejected Him. And in 70 AD, the temple fell, Jerusalem was crushed, and the center of the church moved out of Palestine and into the Gentile regions. And I guarantee you that that broke the heart of God. But it was prophesied right here before it ever happened in, in Jesus' teaching. You will not finish this, this mission I'm sending you on in my spirit until I am vindicated, until I come and receive this kingdom uh, from the ancient of days, from the throne of God. Don't worry, I'm not going to leave us here. <laughs> That's sobering, isn't it? I think we need that from time to time. But I said in the beginning, uh, there's two approaches to this text. Uh, we looked at the first level, and I think it's clear that Jesus' instructions are for the twelve disciples. Uh, they're for a specific set time and a set audience. And so where on earth does that leave us today? What does this teach us about Jesus? Well... We learn that Jesus is into calling you and me and people into work that actually matters. You know, God works in all kinds of mysterious ways. There's probably, we probably don't see most of what Jesus does every second of every day. Um, you know, if you really take the uh, theology seriously and you're not a deist, Jesus is thinking about holding your atoms together. All you need to do is stop thinking about it and you would just probably just disintegrate. Like we take all these laws for physics, uh, of physics for granted. But Jesus hasn't just like created us, spun the world and said, okay, I'll see you later when I come back. Like he's actively engaged in our world. There's so many things. Like uh, the fact that my badula oblongata makes my heart beat right now. I don't have to think about that. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> right? There's just so many things that are on behind the scenes that Jesus does. But one thing we know is that Jesus loves to involve people in His work. And, I don't know, maybe you're, you have the bumper sticker that says, uh, he has a little guy peeing on the word work. Uh, I actually think that God created us to work. In the second chapter of Genesis, He gives His creation work. Right? Work is dignified in God. And I think He gives us great dignity in the fact that He invites us to work. And not only just general work, but hard work. Vital work. Life and death type of work. You know, sometimes when I'm working with my kids in the yard, I'll, I'll kind of patronize them and give them like a little something to do. That if they screw up, it's not going to hurt anything. You just go, you know, weed over there in the pile of weeds. Like there's, you're not going to accidentally pull up the tulips. But God actually involves us in work that is life and death work, that is vital, that has restorative potential. That is amazing and dignifying. 
And even though this text that we're looking at tonight is very specific about the twelve in this time frame, there's plenty of other places in Matthew's Gospel and other works where he... He calls us to universal mission. In fact, if you're here on Easter, we looked at the Great Commission. Go out and tell this to all the nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Right? Teaching them to obey all I've commanded you. Woo! That's everybody. Important work. Second thing, and I love this one, and I hope you do too, is that this tells us that Jesus equips those He calls. When I talk with other pastors in particular and coach church planters and stuff like that we all have these days when it's like I can't do this another day I feel so inadequate I don't have any of the right answers I don't know what I'm doing I mean this is common pastor talk (laughs) and the one thing I try and remind myself with and remind my colleagues with and I'll remind you with because you are called as well is that when you are called he equips you and you don't need to think you're all that in fact you probably aren't and neither am I but the good thing is is that he he equips us to do the, the things that he calls us to and if you're a follower of Jesus he has called you to trust him to obey him to be on mission as a sheep vulnerable wise and 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 single-minded and simple and not with guile and he'll equip you to do that and that is really good news so whenever you feel down and inadequate he's called you and he will give you what it takes to do what he calls you to do I could stop right there, but I won't. Third, this passage tells us that Jesus is the Son of Man, that He is the Father's authorized Savior. Jesus is the one who is vindicated over His enemies. All right, just had to get that one in there. What does this say then? I mean, it tells us a little bit about the character of Jesus. What does this say then to us on the other side of the resurrection of the cross? Well, first of all, it fits right in line with other passages that tell us that we are His sent ones. The church is sent to reflect the good news of the kingdom and to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. Reflect the good news of the kingdom in the things that we do. Proclaim the good news of the kingdom in the things that we say. And we would do well to live our mission with the wisdom of serpents and the innocence or single-minded fidelity of doves. And I think that the wisdom of serpents, let's just get off that whole snake thing, I know Corey hates snakes, uh, is at a basic level we're talking about wisdom. Wisdom starts with the fear of the Lord. All right? It is the right and loving appropriation of knowledge. That sounds ridiculous, why did I write that? Uh, it's, wisdom is more than knowledge. It's taking all the stuff that you know, all the stuff that you learned, all the facts, all the trivia, all the school, all the, all the experience... And it is applying it in a way that is respectful and loving. That is wisdom. And that means, I think, that we should be culturally sensitive when we're about this mission. Like, talking to someone in Bellingham about Jesus, you can't assume that they necessarily ever have cracked open a Bible. You're going to talk to someone in Bellingham about Jesus differently than you would talk to someone in the Bible Belt about Jesus. Is that right? 
Right. And you're going to talk to someone in an urban multicultural setting about Jesus. You're going to do ministry there differently than you would do on a Native American reservation, differently than you would do in a primarily white American rural setting. Those are very different places. Bellingham is a very different place. I feel bad sometimes about getting excited because it's subdued excitement here. Uh, this guy might be a fanatic. Uh, being wise as serpents mean, uh, means knowing the laws of the land. You know, I, I, I really respect um, people that, um, you know, do all kinds of amazing things for God, but sometimes people are stupid for Christ. And that whole sense about being fools for Christ, that doesn't mean be a, an idiot for Christ. Like, uh, don't, don't, like, know the law of the land and work within it and try and, try and change it if you can. But don't just, don't just fly in the face of, uh, of other cultural laws when we go overseas or, or even in our own law. Now, if there's things that, that are completely contradictory to the way of Christ and you're like, like, this never happens to us. But, like, if the book of Daniel where you're supposed to bow down, like, if Obama said you're supposed to bow down to some idol. Uh, yeah, you don't do that. But come on, how many times are we in that situation? Be wise. Know the way the world works and, and, and try and change it if you can or work within it. I think maybe one that we often overlook is that being wise means being people of prayer. People of dependence on Jesus and the Spirit of God. Don't miss that one. You might be the smartest person on earth, but if you don't pray, you're not wise. Sorry, that's just it. Uh, we should be praying the Lord taught us this great prayer. We should be praying for God's kingdom to come and His will to be done right here on earth as it is in heaven. We should be praying for daily bread. And even though our cupboards and our freezers might be full, a fire, a sickness, you don't know what's happening tomorrow or tonight. So thank God that you have all those things. And, and that prayer is all in the plural. So when we pray that prayer, give us... This day, our daily bread, we're praying for those kids in Congo that we've been discussing and all around the world. How might we be the answer to our prayer? Those of us with abundance. That's another sermon. <laughs> we're to pray for forgiveness. And we're to think about those we need to extend forgiveness to. And we are to pray for protection from the evil one. When I am faced with temptation, I am inclined to fail, says the pastor of this church and you probably too I need help from the evil one it's okay to pray that prayer a wise person prays that type of prayer being innocent as doves means that we are not divided in our loyalty we don't do this mission for our own gain we don't do it to get the most hits on Twitter we don't do this kind of mission uh, to, to make a big name for ourselves we don't abuse our authority or our connection with Jesus to coerce other people. And those in leadership, whether it be church leadership or anything else, we don't retaliate against people who disagree with us in anger on Facebook and on Twitter and on our blogs. We're not supposed to. And we go about our mission with humility and wisdom. And we should expect rejection and we might even expect retaliation. And we're to leave judgment of even those people that are outright cruel and mean. Leave the judgment to Jesus. Now that sounds like a very hard pill to swallow. And I agree. 
So what is the good news in this? Come on, bring it home, preacher. Okay, so the good news, the good news in this passage is that God loves us and His world so much that He sends us on mission in the first place. That's pretty awesome. He's so invested and committed to rescuing and renewing His creation that He sends you. And that He sent someone else before you who probably told you about Him. That's awesome. How committed is this Jesus to rescuing and renewing his world? Well, let's talk about that. He put on flesh and dwelt among us. And the way he did that was coming through a natural birth through an unwed mother in first century Palestine. He left his high position and became nothing. The one who promises that our mission will get us persecuted and hated. The one who says, you're probably going to get scourged or killed, was himself misunderstood and isolated and hated and scourged and crucified. It is good news that our king who calls us to these things also experienced suffering and hardship. But the best news of all is that this king who calls us and equips us also rose from the dead And when we identify with Him and His mission in His Spirit, we too receive that victory over death. We too receive eternal life. He who spread the word of forgiveness of sin receives forgiveness of sin. So He calls you to talk about forgiveness of sin. You are also the recipient of that forgiveness. And we who proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God Receive the kingdom of God as part of our family inheritance through Jesus. And that is very good news. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I I so appreciate uh, that you are the kind of, of God, of king, of leader who... You don't call us to do things that you yourself haven't done and have probably done more of and and harder things. Um, Thank you that you so identify with us in our fears. Thank you that you identify with the fact that when we are insulted or wronged, we, we want to fight back. We want to fight wolf with wolf. And I pray that you would help us to to trust in the unseen promises, uh, the promise of um, of an eternal resurrected life, the promise that you will vindicate, the promise that you will bring justice, the promise that we don't have to look out for number one because you are number one and you look out for us. Lord, it is a mir- it would be a miracle if we really live that way. And that's what we're asking for. I believe that you believe that we can do that in your strength because you wouldn't have taught it otherwise. So Lord, wherever we are at, I pray that you would help us take a grace-filled step in the right direction, whether that's following you for the first time today or after many, many years laying something new down that we can be more fully invested in your mission. Lord, as we prayed earlier upstairs before the service, I pray that you would break our hearts 
for the things that break your heart. Lord, I, I confess that so often we just don't care. So often we are so absorbed with ourselves that we are not about mission. Forgive us, Lord, and help us. We are weak. Amen.